Some years following the Protestant Reformation. Now, you all know what the Protestant Reformation is, right? You are, believe it or not, Protestants. That's what we are. Protesters against, basically, the Church of Rome. The Protestant Reformation began when uh, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg Castle door. Uh, The church there in Wittenberg, uh, the Wittenberg Castle Church door, I should say. And that's pretty much when people began to really revolt against the tyranny of Rome. And you had many people prior to that who were trying to bring the truth of God's Word back to the people. Gutenberg Press was uh, pretty much invented so that they could print the Bible and give it to people in their own language. These things were happening. And with, with Luther... The Reformation kind of exploded. The truth of God's Word came back. People were again taken by the the wonder and the glory and the mercy and the grace of God and were done with religion and the tyranny of the Church of Rome and just the mere traditions that people went through. And God's Word sprang forth with power and great truth was again brought to the hearts of people and many were saved and churches were established. Entire denominations were established. But along comes a guy, oh, a little bit, you know, the Reformation began in 1517. Next year is the, what, 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. But in the 1600s, In the early 1600s, along comes a guy by the name of Jacob Arminius. Now, Jacob Arminius was a Dutch theologian. And he didn't like a lot of what was being taught by the Reformers. And he wanted to bring forth some other things for the people in the churches to consider, other than what the Reformation was teaching. And so Jacob Arminius developed a system of belief that was contrary to much of what Reformation theology was, much of what the Reformers were teaching. For instance, he taught that man was basically good, that deep down inside man was good and therefore capable of responding to God. Totally contrary to what we just read in Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says, you're dead in your trespasses and your sins. Arminius said, no, 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 you're not really dead. You're just really sick, maybe. You're not dead. Mostly dead. But not completely dead just sinners. There's good within you and you can be saved by your own initiatives. He taught, therefore, that man had free will, absolute, total free will, and he was not bound by the sovereignty of God. He was totally independent and not subject to him and to his sovereignty. He also taught such things as Jesus did not give his life to specifically save men from their sins. He died to make salvation possible. And since there's that goodness in you, you can therefore respond. Again, contrary to the scriptures and contrary to even what we saw from Ephesians Chapter 2. Now that is a very basic, rough, thumbnail understanding of what Jacob Arminius taught. And here's what I want to tell you. In the Synod of Dort, a synod being a gathering of church leaders, of church teachers, the theologians of the church, and it, this, this synod, this assembly, this conference, lasted from 1618 to 1619. And in that conference, they examined the teaching of Jacob Arminius, and they determined that it was absolute heresy, and that what Arminius was teaching 
was against the word of God and against the church. It was heresy. And so therefore, from years on, following that, his teachings had been rejected by the church and considered to be heretical. So all throughout the 1600s, 1700s, and into the 1800s, the church rejected Arminianism, which is what it was called. Some of you have heard me mention that term. Arminianism. Counter to the Word of God. Counter to the teaching of the Reformation. And then suddenly what happens? With everything else that we have been seeing at the same time. The late 1800s, the beginning of the 1900s, all of a sudden, the teaching that was denounced as heresy crept its way back into the church. To the point where today it has become the accepted doctrine in the church that they believe what Jacob Arminius said in contrast to what the Word of God says. That as he said, it's all just up to you, folks. You have total and absolute free will. Jesus didn't die to save anyone unless you make a decision and raise a hand and come down an aisle and accept him as your personal Savior. By the way, that language is not found anywhere in the Bible. But that's what Arminianism teaches. And now today, that is what the church has brought back. This heresy is now accepted doctrine. How can that be? It can't. That is why I and this church reject Arminianism. We reject what Jacob Arminius taught. We do not believe in an easy believism. Absolute free will is a myth. It does not exist. And we will see that from the scripture beginning even today. Once again, you say, what? I thought we were looking at the appearances of Jesus before his disciples, following his resurrection from the dead, and what he taught them. Where are we getting this from? Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Here we have the occasion of Jesus' appearance on the mount. We already saw his appearance at the shore where he restored Peter and told him to feed my sheep. We also considered his appearances as reported by Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And now we're looking at his appearance on the mount when he gives what we commonly refer to as the Great Commission. But prior to that, in verse 16, we see that the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, and we talked a little bit about who might have been there on the mount at the time Jesus appeared, since it was the only time that Jesus said he would appear. And so we considered a little bit about who might have been there, this may have been the account when the 500 plus people saw him. But we also went from there to see in verse 17 that they worshipped him. We talked about what that means to worship God. And then in verse 18, we looked then at Jesus came close to them. He came up to his disciples and we talked about his closeness to his disciples and his closeness to us. But then from there, still in verse 18, we saw that he said, All authority has been given to me. Pasa exousia. All authority. And we saw that that meant that he is the one who is sovereign. He is the one who has all power and strength to rule. And he says that he is the ruler of all things. All authority has been given to me. Then we, we spoke a little bit about 
the phrase that says, has been given me. And we saw that from the power of his finished work on the cross and then his resurrection from the dead, even more glory and honor and power were attributed to our Savior. All authority has been given to me. I have accomplished the work. This is him standing there before his disciples, risen from the dead. And that is why he says, all authority has been given to me. But then last Lord's Day, we considered a little bit more of this phrase when he says, all authority has been given me in heaven. And we talked about the two areas that that would include. His power over the heavens themselves. Jesus is the Lord of the universe. He is in control of the heavens. There's not a star that exists or a star that dies without the sovereign word of Jesus. He is in control of all the heavens. We saw even from the scriptures how he caused the earth's rotation to stop so that Joshua could completely defeat the enemy. God can do that because he's God and all authority has been given to him. But we also considered that that means not only the heavens themselves, but the heavenly host. He has all authority over all the hosts of heaven. The angels created by God, the ministering angels, even the fallen angels, the demons and the devil himself are under the authority of King Jesus. We often say that Satan does seek to tempt people and he does have a following of all the lost, but still... He is on a leash held by King Jesus, and it's a short leash. He will not allow Satan to do anything beyond his decrees. And so you need not fear the devil. He's under the control of King Jesus. And now today, we come to the next area mentioned in the text where it says that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now let that sink in. All authority has been given to Jesus on earth. And for the next several messages, we are going to look into what that means. And we're going to begin today in much the same way as we did last week, looking at the scriptures as to what this might mean. Because I believe that this is a foundational text to understanding who Jesus is. And who he is as sovereign king is something that is very seldom taught. In churches in our day. It is a doctrine that seems to have gone the way of the dodo bird. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to bring it up. Because man has replaced God as being sovereign in many churches today. But I tell you that this speaks of Jesus as having all authority even over the earth, and that includes those that are on it. But we will begin by looking at what it means for him to rule over the physical earth. Now we're going to get into some of these other things, including kings and princes, and most importantly to us, the church. But let's begin by seeing that he is Lord over the physical earth. Earth. Now, one of the hymns that I had to omit this morning was All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. And it spoke of us being on this terrestrial ball. And that's exactly what he is, king over all who are on this terrestrial ball. 
this earth that we live on. And I'd like to take you right to the source to show that God, and remember, Jesus is creator. Jesus is God. We saw that in John 1.1. You also see that in Genesis chapter 1. But I want to ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 8. Right to the source here. All the way back to Genesis chapter 8. Some of you know, you know me, and you know my opinion of many politicians today. And you know my opinion of the government. And I'm just going to say that for the most part, I believe that much of what comes from Washington, D.C. is lies. And it is anti-Christian. It is anti-God. Now, they may not think it is. They may not think that it is so. But according to the Word of God, much of what comes from Washington, D.C. is anti-Christian, anti-God, anti-Bible. And this is one of those occasions where I get to preach it from the Scriptures. Genesis chapter 8. This, as you may know, as you turn here, is the account of the end of the flood. Believing the Bible, we believe that there was a worldwide flood. And the flood covered all of the earth. And only Noah and his family were saved in the flood. A picture of God's grace. Able to save you even in the worst of conditions, in the worst situation. And here we have the end of the flood. Verse 20. They're coming out of the ark. And Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. And now he gives this, the beginning of what we call the Noachian Covenant. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. And so what he is saying is, first of all, let's look at it in the shortest term, day and night. Day and night is going to continue. Now, this is a long time ago, at least 4,000 years. On the higher end, maybe as much as 6,000 years ago. And aside from that thing I mentioned with Joshua, pretty much day and night has continued to happen. 24 hours. The time that it takes for the earth to rotate. 24 hours has continued ever since. It hasn't stopped. You know what else has continued ever since? Summer, fall, winter, spring. Summer, fall, winter, spring. Summer, fall, winter, spring. It keeps happening. And that means that, guess what? It's cold in the winter and it's hot in the summer. He even speaks of that. Cold and heat. So now today we have politicians telling us that there is this thing called global warming or global climate change. And somehow or other, because you drive an SUV or use styrofoam cups or plastic bottles, you are changing what God said would not change. Because you drive an SUV and it has emissions that come out that are not what the government wants. You're destroying the planet. You know why they really are telling you this? It has nothing to do with the planet. It has everything to do with getting to your wallet. They are trying to get money from you because of what they want. 
and because they want to give it to other countries because they think we don't deserve what we have. Global warming is a myth. And the prophet Al Gore is a liar. God is in control of the earth. And nothing is ever going to change it aside from his sovereign decrees. I talked a moment ago about the emissions from SUVs. Every time a volcano erupts, more emissions are spewed into the earth in minutes than all of the driving that America has done in the last hundred years. It is a lie. And it is anti-God and anti-Bible. God is in control of the earth. All authority has been given to Jesus on the earth. He is in control. I invite you to turn with me, if you would, please, to Psalm 148. Psalm 148 in your pew Bible is found on page 457 in the Old Testament section. These people today elevate science and men to a place that is above God. And God says, no, I am in control. Psalm 148, if you would please look down to verse 8. Fire and hail, snow, clouds, stormy wind, fulfilling His word. It even speaks of sea monsters in verse 7. But fire and hail, snow and clouds and stormy wind fulfilling His word. We're supposed to be hit with a storm later on. Well, not so much tonight, but probably tomorrow. You think God doesn't know about that? You think that it is happening apart from the sovereign will of the Almighty God who is in control of the earth? This text tells a stormy wind fulfilling His word. God is in control. God is in control of hail and snow and clouds. Do you realize that every snowflake is different? Every snowflake is different. And we believe that every one is created by a sovereign God. We also believe that every snowflake falls exactly where God wants it to. God has all authority over the earth. So what we say from this text is the wind does not blow except from the command of King Jesus that every snowflake is made by Him. Look over now into the New Testament and hear what our Lord says in Matthew's Gospel and chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Let's look down. We'll pick it up at verse 43. This is Jesus speaking in what we commonly call the Sermon on the Mount, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends His reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. He is the one who causes the sun. He is the one who brings the rain for the crops and then for the harvest. These are in the control of the sovereign, authoritative King Jesus. You realize what he's saying? God's the one in control of the rain. God is in control of the elements of the earth. Now go back to Matthew 28. This is Jesus standing before His disciples, following His resurrection, and He says to them in verse 18, All authority has been given to Me in heaven 
end on the earth. All authority is given to him over the physical earth. But not only is he Lord over the physical earth, he is Lord over all men who are on the earth. The church today, as it has slipped into Arminianism, has been doing a good job in teaching the the people in the churches that they are in control. That it is all up to you. That you're the one who has tied God's hands. And he can't do anything unless you let him. Just this morning I was awakened by that silly song that some people think is a hymn where it says, he's standing at the door knocking. Time after time he has waited before and now he is waiting again to see if you will open the door. Oh, why don't you let him come in? What an impotent God who can't even open a door unless you do it. And this is the teaching of the church today, that men are in control. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16, page 467 in the Old Testament. And I want you to remember as we look at this, that in the Proverbs, most of the time or many of the the verses that you look at are independent of the verses that come before or the verses that come after. In other words, the context of each verse usually stands alone. Look down at verse 9. And listen to what is said. And remember, this is the word of God. The mind of a man plans his ways. Or his way. The mind of a man plans his way. Now what's he saying? That is, you have in mind certain things that you want to do. You make plans. We think. We propose. We purpose to do things. We want to do things. The mind of a man plans his way. For instance, we are here this morning and we are worshiping God. But at some point later on, we're all thinking we're going to go home. What if you don't make it? Because the rest of the verse is, but the Lord directs his steps. You may purpose to go home, but you may not make it. Tragedy may befall you. Car accidents. Who knows? Ultimately, God is in control. We have a great gift of God. Of reasoning and desiring and wisdom and planning. This is what we are like as created in the image of God. We have the ability to plan and to reason. We have wisdom. And believe it or not, and I'm sorry, gorillas do not. Men do. We alone are created in the image of God with the attributes of God, the communicable attributes of God. Man is in a category all by himself. Man is man. Only man is man. And man, with the gift of God, can plan and can reason and desire to do things. But ultimately, God is in control. How many times has our brother planned to go out onto the Gulf of Mexico, but it's too windy or too wavy? You can't go. You plan, but God is in control. God is the one who is able to thwart 
even the greatest plans of men. His purposes will prevail. Look at Proverbs chapter 19, just over the page should be. Proverbs chapter 19. Here again, we read in verse 21, Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. What is he saying? You know, some of you kids here, listen to your pastor. I know that you are young. And you're thinking to yourself, I've got lots of years. Lots of time. I can do all kinds of things before I have to worry about getting serious with God. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to be a nurse. I'm going to be a fireman. I'm going to be an engineer. All of these plans. But the counsel of God will stand. And Psalm 139 tells us that He knows your days. He knows whether you'll live to be ten or whether you'll live to be a hundred. God knows. His counsel will stand. He is God. Who can stand against the purposes of God? Prophet Daniel Chapter 4, page 632 in the Pew Bible. Daniel, chapter 4. You look down to verse 34. Some of you will remember that this is the account of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who was turned into an animal. And he was out living in the outside like an animal. For a period of time. And then verse 34. At the end of that period. I Nebuchadnezzar raised my eyes toward heaven. And my reason was returned to me. And I blessed the most high. And praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Look what he says in verse 35. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing but He does according to His will in the host of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done or what are you doing? He does as He pleases. And we can't argue. We can't stop Him and we can't argue. He is the God who is in control and none can stop His purposes. Nebuchadnezzar came to realize that because Nebuchadnezzar was driven out to become like an animal and then when he was restored to his senses, he said, this God is God. He can do as He pleases. He recognized God's sovereignty even over him. Have you? Have you ever recognized God's sovereignty over you? He is in control. He has all authority over the earth, including me. I want to ask you to turn with me, if you would please, to Romans chapter 9. I want for us to look at what the Apostle Paul says here. As he speaks of us being the clay and God being the potter. Romans chapter 9. And I want to just say, first of all, this is God's word. Do not blame me. I'm simply pointing it out to you. This is God's Word. And the trouble is that many people today reject this. But here's what Paul says. Verse 18. 
So then, he has mercy on whom he desires and hardens whom he desires. Speaking of God and what he does in the lives of men. He had mercy on his people. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. It is his sovereign choice. It is his sovereign will and his decree as God. He is the one who is in control even of salvation. Oh, but you say that makes us robots. Who can resist his will? Isn't it amazing that the Apostle Paul knew you'd say that? Verse 19, you will say to me, then why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? If it's all up to God, we're we're just robots. And he's pulling the strings. First of all, that is utterly and completely untrue. I just showed you in Proverbs, you plan, you have wisdom, you make rational decisions. You have been given the gift of God to have thought and wisdom and planning abilities. You do that. You're not a robot. But ultimately... God is in control. And the very fact that Paul speaks of this anticipating the people's response and their objection shows the truth of the doctrine. Because he knew what people would say, but yet he doesn't back down. He says it's still true. Verse 20, On the contrary, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Remember what Nebuchadnezzar said. Who can say to him, what are you doing? We don't answer to God. He is in control. All authority is his. All authority is to God. He is right here addressing Arminius' heresy. Of absolute free will. Paul is right here dealing at the heart of it. You are, I am, we all are, under the authority of God. And he acts as he pleases. Because he is God. And you are not. And who are you? Verse 20, the next part. First of all, who Are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? You see, the picture is of a potter. The potter, let's say he's at the, the potter's wheel. And he pressing that thing down there and cranking it and the wheel goes around and here's a lump of clay. The potter in his head makes that clay the way he wants it to be. If he wants to make an old ugly ashtray, that's what he does. But if he wants to make a beautiful vessel of honor, a pitcher for the king's palace, He has the right to do that as well. And the picture is that God is the one who is in control. You are the clay. We are the clay. He is the potter. And the clay never says to the potter, Hey, wait a minute! Why are you making me like this? Clay doesn't do that. We don't do that. We are under the sovereign authority of King Jesus. Now, we still have responsibility. We still have wisdom, reason, rationality. 
We still have the ability to strive to be godly and holy men and women. We are responsible for our own sin and our own actions. But ultimately, God's purposes will prevail. And here we see that we are not those who would argue with God. The arrogance of man to think that he would stand up to God and say, you don't have any right to do this over me, God. Remember Jesus talking about those who would not have him to rule over them? You have no right to do this to me, God. Fine. Go to hell. And that's what will happen. I'm not telling them that. That is what will happen. Because as men in their rebelliousness against God reject Him and His Son, the ultimate purpose of God will stand, and that is judgment. Judgment for all eternity. He is the potter. We are the clay. Remember, we were made, formed, from the dust of the earth, Genesis chapter 2, and that word really speaks of red clay. That's what we are, and that's what Paul is referring to. Now, I want to just make sure I point this out to you, that the picture here is clear, but what we also have to make sure is that you realize that God never does anything wrong. You don't have to worry about Him. He is the gracious and the kind, the benevolent potter. He's not a bad guy. I'm going to make this lump here. He's not like that. He's the loving God, the loving Father, who molds and makes you into the best that you could possibly be. In Genesis, we learn that the Scripture says that He never does anything wrong. So every single vessel that God makes is just right. And every single one of His Christian children is just what He wants and perfect in His sight. So don't look at this negatively. Look at it positively. That He even had mercy on one person. Because we all deserve hell. We all deserve to go to hell in the judgment of God. But yet he has mercy on some. And he had mercy on me. And I pray that he would have mercy on you. The loving, benevolent God who takes care of and prepares and teaches and molds his people. Now let me ask you this. How did Paul know this so well? If you would please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. This is of course the conversion of Saul to Paul. Now follow with me beginning at verse 1. Now Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord and went to the high priest and asked for letters for him to go into the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, this is what he's doing. Remember, he's on his way to Damascus. That's why we call it the Damascus Road. He's on his way to Damascus to arrest anyone who is a Christian. Breathing out threats of murder. And as he was traveling, verse 3, it happened as he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Notice he was persecuting the church. But Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So if you persecute the church, you persecute Jesus. 
I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter into the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate or drank. Now here's my question. What was Paul doing? Why, Paul was on his way to Damascus to persecute the church. The last thing on Paul's mind was becoming a Christian. In fact, you could say it was exactly the opposite. He wanted to kill Christians. And there is absolutely no indication whatsoever that he was seeking. He was a seeker. He secretly snuck into the back of some Christian meetings and heard what was going on. And so he wanted to know more. No! None of that happened. He was a seeker to kill Christians, not to become a Christian. And what happens? God arrested him on the way. God stopped him. Jesus appeared to him. And though it was totally not even entering his mind, the will of God prevailed in his life. And he got saved. And he became a powerful spokesman for the gospel. And that's why he could write Romans chapter 9. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. He's the potter. I am the clay. He stopped me on the way to kill Christians and made me one of them. Those of you who know your Bible know that the Christians didn't want anything to do with him. They didn't believe he was saved. But he was. By the grace and the mercy of of God. Would you agree with me that this was all by the hand of God? Saul was not looking to become a Christian, but God saved him. Now this is what we're talking about. God is ultimately in control even to men. He has all authority even over men. Now if you would look back to Ephesians chapter 2, that passage we read. And this is exactly what this same man is saying. This is the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we all too formerly lived. He's talking about himself. He was a persecutor of Christians. But God, verse 4, rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. God does it. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. He has all authority, even over your heart, even over your life. This is what we're talking about, that ultimately God has control. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 says, Christ is the head of every man. And the only question is, do you believe it? I've shown you what the Bible says. The question is, do you believe? believe it. Now back in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus is standing before the apostles, before the disciples, and maybe before even those 500 plus people. And He says, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. I control the hearts of men. I am the sovereign God. Churches today are elevating men above Christ, saying that they are in control. You're in control of your own destiny. You have this whole macho thing in America that we have to be in control. 
And yet the Bible says he is in control. Now, that's as far as I can go into this. I can't go any more deeply. And I know the questions that it raises. Oh, then, then we're robots. No. Paul addressed that. You're not robots. The scriptures address that. You have thoughts and plans and wishes and desires and hopes and loves. And God knows all of that. And in many cases, He gives you those desires and those plans. And they're all blessed of Him. But ultimately, He is in control. If that is not the case, what is the case? That God then becomes subject to your whims, to your desires, to your impulses. And so then He becomes the robot. And you pull his strings. And I suggest to you today that that is very much what is being taught in churches. That God is some kind of a spiritual vending machine. That if you just put in your money, if you give to our ministry, then God will heal you and make you better. But you got to give the money first. You got to put the money in the slot and pull the handle, and then Jesus will heal you and make you healthy. Or Jesus will make you wealthy. Or even more simple than that, you got to pray and you got to do this and you got to come forward at a church service, and then God will save you. If you take the first step, then God will save you. If you open the door, then God will come in. Dead people can't open doors. God has to open the door. God is sovereign. God is in control. God is God. Don't argue with me. If you don't believe that, argue with God. It's His Word. Man is not in control. Man is the clay. And so I close by asking you this. Who's God? You or Him? Who's God? You or Him? Who has authority? You or God? I pray that at this time in many of your Christian lives, you recognize and realize that God is God. Some of you have often heard me say, that's the difference between our church and most others around. We actually believe God is God, not us. Next time we're going to study and see how this doctrine affects the church. And believe me, it does. Jesus has a lot to say about that. But for today, I plead with you, Bow to Him. Even as we saw in Matthew 28, the disciples bowed and worshipped Him because He's God and worthy of worship. He's true God. He has all authority. I plead with you today, come to Him. Have dealings with Him. Settle with Him. Acknowledge Him as God and your clay and ask Him to mold you into a beautiful Christian servant. Let's pray.